What's up YouTube? It's Grante and welcome back to the show. Today we are getting into another chapter of Principles by Ray Dalio in audiobook format. This will be chapter 10, Manage as Someone Operating a Machine to Achieve a Goal. And I'm pretty excited about this one because it's a lot more operations oriented. But before we get into that, I need to run our next audiobook uh, selections by you. Let me know what you guys think, because first we have Surrogate Warfare, Transformation of War in the 21st Century. We have The Strenuous Life, Essays and Addresses by Theodore Roosevelt. And this one I've read like eight chapters of, it's awesome, The Captain Class, A New Theory of Leadership. Now, if any of those sound exciting for season 15 of the audiobook series, let me know. Without further ado, chapter 10 of Principles by Ray Dalio. This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Principles, Life and Work, written by Ray Dalio in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or check out my website for downloads. To build and evolve your machine, most people get caught up in the blizzard of doing things coming at them. In contrast, successful people get above the blizzard so they can see the causes and effects at play. This higher level perspective allows them to see themselves and others objectively as a machine, to understand who can and cannot do what well, and how everyone can fit together in a way that will produce the best outcomes. Now that you've learned the best ways to approach a machine's two components, its culture and its people, I'd like to turn to principles for managing and improving your machine. In the next chapter, I will go over my high-level principles for applying higher-level thinking to conceptualize your organization as a machine. This isn't just a thought experiment. Thinking in a machine-like way also has important practical ramifications for how you manage your team and how you design roles, responsibilities, and workflows. In Chapter 10, Manage as Someone Operating a Machine to Achieve a Goal, I apply this approach to organizational design at its highest levels. Once you understand how to build and run your machine, your next, next objective is to figure out how to improve it. We do this through the five-step process I described as 1. Identifying goals 2. Encountering problems 3. Diagnosing those problems to get at their root causes 4. Designing changes to get around the problems and 5. Doing what is needed, or execution. Think of any organization you know and you will see that they go through this evolutionary process with varying degrees of success. The world is littered with once great organizations that deteriorated because the initial waves of excellence faded and the leadership failed to adequately adapt by changing the people and the designs. There are also a few organizations that keep reinventing themselves to go on to new heights of greatness. The subsequent chapters of this section explain how the five-step process works within an organization and what you need to do to make sure you get the most out of it. To be effective, you must look out down upon your machines as would an organizational engineer, comparing the outputs with the goals and constantly modifying the people and the design to make the outputs better. Most importantly, you must orchestrate your people. How well you do this will determine your success. Finally, you'll read two chapters on making sure the idea meritocracy runs as designed, both at the day-to-day -day and the strategic level. Chapter 15, Use Tools and Protocols to Shape How Work is Done, describes the importance of systemization and tools to ensure the idea meritocracy functions as intended. And in chapter 16, 
For heaven's sake, don't overlook governance. I explained that while at first I underestimated the importance of governance to ensuring that an organization operates effectively over time, as I've transitioned myself out of running Bridgewater day to day, I've learned a number of important principles for how governance should function within an idea meritocracy. Chapter 10, manage as someone operating a machine to achieve a goal. No matter what work you do, at a high level, you are simply setting goals and building machines to help you achieve them. I built the machine that is Bridgewater by constantly comparing its actual outcomes to my mental map of the, of the outcomes that it should be producing and finding ways to improve it. I won't say anything specific about how you should set your own organization's goals other than that the high-level principles about goal-setting I covered in Life Principles apply equally to individuals and organizations. I will, however, point out that in running your organization, you and the people you work with must be clear on how your lower-level goals, whether they're to produce things cost-effectively, achieve high customer satisfaction, help a certain number of people in need or whatever, grow out of your higher-level goals and value values. No matter how good you are at design, your machine will have problems. You or some other capable mechanic needs to identify those problems and look under the hood of the machine to diagnose their root causes. You or whoever is diagnosing those problems has to understand what the parts of the machine, the designs, and the people are like and how they work together to produce the outcomes. The people are the most important part, since most everything, including the designs themselves, comes from people. Unless you have a clear understanding of your machine from a higher level and can visualize all its parts and how they work together, you will inevitably fail at this diagnosis and fall short of your potential. At Bridgewater, the high-level goal of all our machines is to create excellent outcomes for our clients, in the returns on their investments, of course, but also in the quality of our relationship and our thought partnership in understanding global economies and markets more broadly. Before we had anything else at Bridgewater, we had this commitment to excellence. Maintaining these extremely high standards has always been a challenge, especially as the pace of our growth and change accelerated. In the next several chapters, I will walk you through a case in which our client service outcomes began to slip and show how we used the five-step process to improve our machine. But first, I want to share some high-level principles for building and evolving the machine that is any organization. 10.1. Look down on your machine and yourself within it from the higher level. Higher level thinking isn't something that's done by high, higher level beings. It's simply seeing things from the top down. Think of it as looking at a photo of yourself and the world around you from outer space. From that vantage, you can see the relationships between the continents, countries, and seas. Then you get more granular by zooming into a closer up view of your country, your city, your neighborhood, and finally, your immediate environment. Having that macro perspective gives you much more insight than you'd get if you simply looked around at your house through your own eyes. A. Constantly compare your outcomes to your goals. You must always be simultaneously trying to accomplish the goal and evaluating the machine, the people, and the design, as all outcomes are reflections of how the machine is running. Whenever you identify a problem with your machine, you need to diagnose whether it is the result of a flaw in its design or in the way that people are handling their responsibilities. Sample size is important. Any problem can be a one-off imperfection or a symptom of root causes that will show up as problems repeatedly. 
if you look at enough problems, which one it is will become clear. B. Understand that a great manager is essentially an organizational engineer. Great managers are not philosophers, entertainers, doers, or artists. They are engineers. They see their organizations as machines and work assiduously to maintain and improve them. They create process flow diagrams to show how the machine works and to evaluate its design. They build metrics to light up how well each of the individual parts of the machine, most importantly, the people, and the machine as a whole are working. And they tinker constantly with its designs and its people to make both better. They don't do this randomly. They do it systematically, always keeping the cause and effect relationship in mind. And while they care deeply about the people involved, they cannot allow their feelings for them or their desire to spare them discomfort to stand in the way of the machine's constant improvement. To do otherwise wouldn't be good for either the individuals on the team or the team that the individuals are a part of. Of course, the higher up you are in an organization, the more important vision and creativity become. But you still must have the skills required to manage and orchestrate well. Some young entrepreneurs start with the vision and creativity and then develop their management skills as they scale their they scale their companies. Others start with management skills and develop vision as they climb the ladder. But like great musicians, all great managers have both creativity and technical skills. And no manager at any level can expect to succeed without the skill set of an organizational engineer. C. Build great metrics. Metrics show how the machine is working by providing numbers and setting off alert lights in a dashboard. Metrics are an objective means of assessment and they tend to have favorable impact on productivity. If your metrics are good enough, you can gain such a complete and accurate view of what your people are doing and how well they are doing it that you can almost manage via the metrics alone. In constructing your metrics, imagine the most important questions you need answered in order to know how things are going, and imagine what numbers will give you the answers to them. Don't look at the numbers that you have and try to adapt them to your purposes, because you won't get what you need. Instead, start with the most important questions and imagine the metrics that will answer them. Remember that any single metric can be misled, so you need to, or can mislead, so you need enough evidence to establish patterns. And of course, the information that goes into the metrics must be assessed for accuracy. A reluctance to be critical can be detected by looking at the average grade each grader gives. Those giving higher average grades might be easy graders, and vice versa. Similarly, helpful are forced rankings, in which people must rank coworker performance from best to worst. Forced rankings are essentially the same thing as grading on a curve. Metrics that allow for independent grading across departments and groups are especially valuable. D. Beware of paying too much attention to what is coming at you and not enough attention to your machine. If you keep focus on each individual task, you will get inevitably bogged down. If instead you pay attention to building and managing your machines, you will be rewarded many times over. E. Don't get distracted by shiny objects. No matter how complete any project or plan, there will always be things that come out of nowhere and look like the most important or urgent or attractive thing to focus on. These shiny objects may be traps that will distract you from thinking in a machine-like way, so be on your guard for them and don't let yourself be seduced. 10.2. Remember that for every case you deal with, your approach should have two purposes. One, to move you closer to your goal, 
and two, to train and test your machine, i.e. your people and your design. The second purpose is more important than the first because it is how you build a solid organization that works well in all cases. Most people focus more on the first purpose, which is a big mistake. A. Everything is a case study. Think about what type of case it is and what principles apply to that type of case. By doing this and helping others to do this, you'll get better at handling situations as they repeat over and over again through time. B. When a problem occurs, conduct the discussion at two levels. One, the machine level, why that outcome was produced, and two, the case at hand level, what to do about it. Don't, they, don't make the mistake of just having the case at hand discussion because then you are micromanaging, i.e. you are doing your manager's thinking or your managee's thinking and your managee will mistakenly think that's okay. When having the machine level discussion, think clearly about how things should have gone and explore why they didn't go that way. If you are in a rush to determine what to do and you have to tell the person who works for you what to do, make sure to explain what you are doing and why. C. When making rules, explain the principles behind them. You don't want the people you work with to merely pay lip service to your community's rules. They should have a high sense of ethics that make them want to abide by them and hold others accountable for abiding by them, while also working to perfect them. The way to achieve this is via principles that are sound and have been tested through open discussion. D. Your policies should be natural extensions of your principles. Principles are hierarchical, some are overarching, and some are less important, but they all should inform the policies that guide your individual decisions. It pays to think those policies through to ensure that they are consistent with each other and the principles they are derived from. When faced with a case that doesn't have a clear policy to follow, for example, what to do about an employee whose job is to travel but who faces potential health risks because of the travel, one can't just snatch an answer out of the blue without regard for higher-level principles. Policymakers must make policy in the same way that the judicial system creates case law, iteratively and incrementally, by dealing with specific cases and interpreting the law as it applies to them. And that is how I have tried to operate. When a case arises, I lay out the principles behind how I am handling it and get in sync with others to see if we agree on those principles or must modify them to make them better. By and large, that's how all Bridgewater's principles and policies were developed. E. While good principles and policies almost always provide good guidance, remember that there are exceptions to every rule. While everyone has the right to make sense of things, and is in fact obliged to challenge principles and policies if they conflict with what they believe is the best approach, that's not the same thing as having the right to change them. Changes in policies must be approved by those who made them, for someone else who has been made responsible for evolving them. When someone wishes to make an exception to an important policy at Bridgewater, they must write up a proposed alternative policy and escalate their request to the management committee. Exceptions should be extremely rare because policies that have frequent exceptions are ineffective. The management committee will formally consider it and either reject, amend, or adopt it. 10.3. Understand the differences between managing, micromanaging, and not managing. Great managers orchestrate rather than do. Like the conductor of an orchestra, they do not play an instrument, but direct their people so that they play beautifully together. 
Micromanaging, in contrast, is telling the people who work for you exactly what tasks to do or doing their tasks for them. Not managing is having them do their jobs without your oversight and involvement. To be successful, you need to understand these differences and manage at the right level. A. Managers must make sure that they, what they are responsible for works well. They can do this by 1. Managing others well, as explained above. 2. Job slipping down to do work they're not responsible for because others can't do their jobs well. Or 3. Escalating what they can't manage well. The first choice is optimal. The second choice signals that a change is needed in the people and the design. The third choice is harder but still mandatory. B. Managing the people who report to you should feel like skiing together. Like a ski instructor, you need to have close contact with your people on the slopes so that you can assess their strengths and weaknesses as they are doing their jobs. There should be good back and forth as they learn by trial and error. With time, you will be able to decide what they can and can't handle on their own. C. An excellent skier is probably going to be a better ski coach than a novice skier. Believability applies to management too. The better your track record, the more value you can add as a coach. D. You should be able to delegate the details. If you keep getting bogged down in details, you either have a problem with managing or training or you have the wrong people doing the wrong job. The real sign of a master manager is that he doesn't have to do practically anything. Managers should view the need to get involved in the nitty-gritty as a bad sign. At the same time, there's danger in thinking you're delegating details when you're actually being too distant from what's important and essentially are not managing. Great managers know the difference. They strive to hire, train, and oversee in a way which others can superbly handle as much as possible on their own. 10.4. Know what your people are like and what makes them tick, because your people are your most important resource. Develop a full profile of each person's values, abilities, and skills. These qualities are the real drivers of behavior, so knowing them in detail will tell you which jobs a person can and cannot do well, which ones they should avoid, and how the person should be trained. These profiles should change as the people change. If you don't know your people well, you don't know what you can expect from them. You're flying blind, and you have no one to blame but yourself if you don't get the outcomes you are expecting. A. Regularly take the temperature of each person who is important to you and the organization. Probe your key people and urge them to bring up anything that might be bothering them. These problems might be ones you are unaware of, or they may be misunderstood by the person raising them. Whatever the case, it is essential that they be brought out into the open. B. Learn how much confidence to have in your people. Don't assume it. No manager should delegate responsibilities to people they don't know well. It takes time to learn about people and how much confidence you can invest in them. Sometimes new people are offended when their managers don't have confidence in how they are carrying out their responsibilities. They think it's a criticism of their abilities when it's simply a ma matter of the manager being realistic about the fact that he or she hasn't had enough time to direct experience with them to form a point of view. C. Vary your involvement based on your confidence. Management largely consists of scanning and probing everything you are responsible for to identify suspicious signs. Based on what you see, you should vary your degree of digging, doing more for people in areas that look suspicious and less where what you see instills confidence. 
at Bridgewater a host of tools, issue logs, metrics, daily updates, checklists. These produce objective performance-related data. Managers should review and spot-check them regularly. 10.5. Clearly assign responsibilities. Eliminate any confusion about expectations and ensure that people view their failure to complete their tasks and achieve their goals as personal failures. The most important person on a team is the one who is given the overall responsibility for accomplishing the mission. This person must have both the vision to see what should be done and the discipline to make sure it's accomplished. A. Remember who has what responsibilities. While that might sound obvious, people often fail to stick to their own responsibilities. Even senior people in organizations sometimes act like young kids just learning to play soccer, running after the ball in an effort to help but forgetting what position they are supposed to play. This can undermine rather than improve performance, so make sure that people remember how the team is supposed to work and that they play their positions well. B. Watch out for job slip. Job slip is when a job changes without being explicitly thought through and agreed to, generally because of changing circumstances or a temporary necessity. Job slip often leads to the wrong people handling the wrong responsibilities and confusion over who is supposed to do that. 10.6. Probe deep and hard to learn what you can expect from your machine. Constantly probe the people who report to you while making sure they understand that it's good for them and everyone else to surface their problems and mistakes. Doing so is required to make sure you're getting what you want, even from people who are doing their jobs well, though they can be given a bit more leeway. Probing shouldn't just come from the top down. The people who work for you should constantly challenge you so that you can become as good as you can be. In doing so, they will understand that they are just as responsible for finding solutions as you are. It's much easier for people to remain spectators than to become players. Forcing them onto the field strengthens the whole team. A. Get a threshold level of understanding. When managing an area, you need to gain a rich understanding of the people, processes, and problems around you to make well-informed decisions. Without that understanding, you will believe the stories and excuses you are told. B. Avoid staying too distant. You need to know your people extremely well, provide and receive regular feedback, and have quality discussions. And while you don't want to get distracted by gossip, you have to be able to get a quick download from the appropriate people. Your job design needs to build in the time to do these things. If it doesn't, you run the risk of not managing. The tools I have developed give me windows into what people are doing and what they are like, and I follow up on problems. C. Use daily updates as a tool for staying on top of what your people are doing and thinking. I ask each person who reports to me to take about 10 to 15 minutes to write a brief description of what they did that day, the issues pertaining to them, and their reflections. By reading these updates and triangulating them, i.e. seeing other people's takes on what we are doing together, I can gauge how they are working together, what their moods are, and which threads I should pull on. D. Probe so you know whether problems are likely to occur before they actually do. If problems take you by surprise, it is probably because you are either too far removed from your people and processes, or you haven't adequately visualized how the people and processes might lead to various outcomes. When a crisis is brewing, contact should be close enough that there will be no surprises. E. Probe to the level below the people who report to you. You can't understand how the person who reports to you manages others unless you know their direct reports and can observe how they behave. 
F. Have the people to, who report to the people who report to you feel free to escalate their problems to you. This is a great and useful form of upward accountability. G. Don't assume that people's answers are correct. People's answers should be erroneous theories or spin, so if you need to occasionally double-check them, especially when they sound questionable. Some managers are reluctant to do this, feeling it is the equivalent of saying they don't trust their people. These managers need to understand that this process is how trust is earned or lost. Your people will learn to be much more accurate in what they tell you if they understand this, and you will learn who you can rely on. H. Train your ear. Over time, you'll hear the same verbal cues indicating that someone is thinking about something badly or failing to apply principles appropriately. For example, listen to the anonymous we as a cue that someone is likely depersonal, depersonalizing a mistake. I. Make your probing transparent rather than private. This helps assure the quality because others can make their own assessments and it will reinforce the culture of truth and transparency. Welcome this probing. It's important to welcome this probing of yourself because no one can see themselves objectively. When you are being assessed, it's essential to remain calm. Your emotional lower level you will probably react with something like, you're a jerk because you're against me and make me feel bad. Whereas your thoughtful higher level you should be thinking, it's wonderful that we can be completely honest like this and have such a wonderful exchange to help assure that I'm doing things well. Listen to your higher level you and don't lose sight of how difficult it can be for the person doing the probing. Besides, helping to make the organization and your relationship with the person who is probing you go well, working yourself through this difficult assessment will build your character and your equanimity. K. Remember that people who see things and think one way often have difficulty communicating with and relating to people who see things and think another way. Imagine you had to describe what a rose smells like to someone who lacks a sense of smell. No matter how accurate your explanation, it will always fall short of the actual experience. The same thing is true of differences in ways of thinking. They are like blind spots, and if you have one, which we all do, it can be challenging to see what's there. Working through these differences requires a lot of patience and open-mindedness, as well as triangulating with other people who can help fill in the picture. L. Pull all suspicious threads. It's worth pulling all suspicious threads because, one, small negative situations can be symptomatic of serious underlying problems. Two, resolving small differences of perception may prevent more serious divergence of views. And three, in trying to create a culture that values excellence, constantly reinforcing the need to point out and stare at problems, no matter how small, is essential. Otherwise, you risk setting an example of tolerating mediocrity. Prioritization can be a trap if it causes you to ignore the problems around you. Allowing small problems to go unnoticed and unaddressed creates the perception that it's acceptable to tolerate such things. Imagine that all your little problems are small pieces of trash you're stepping over to get to the other side of the room. Sure, what's on the other side of the room may be very important, but it won't hurt you to pick up the trash as you've come to it, and by reinforcing the culture of excellence, it will have a positive second and third order consequences that will reverberate across the organization. While you may not need to pick up every piece, you should never lose sight of the fact that you're stepping over the trash, nor that it's probably not as hard as you think to pick up a piece or two as you go on your way. M. Recognize that there are many ways to skin a cat. 
Your assessment of how responsible parties are doing their jobs should not be based on whether they're doing it your way or whether they're doing it in a good way. Be careful about expecting a person who achieves success one way to do it a different way. That's like insisting to Babe Ruth that he improve his swing. 10.7. Think like an owner and expect the people you work with to do the same. It's a basic reality that if you don't experience the consequences of your actions, you will take less ownership of them. If you are an employee and you get a paycheck for turning up and pleasing your boss, your mindset will inevitably be trained to this cause-effect relationship. If you are a manager, make sure you structure incentives and penalties that encourage people to take full ownership of what they do and not just coast by. This includes straightforward things, such as spending money like it's their own and making sure their responsibilities aren't neglected when they're out of the office. When people recognize that their own well-being is directly connected to that of their community, the ownership relationship becomes reciprocal. A. Going on vacation doesn't mean one can neglect one's responsibilities. Thinking like an owner means making sure that your responsibilities are handled well, regardless of what comes up. While you are away on vacation, it's your responsibility to make sure nothing drops. You can do that via a combination of good planning and coordination before you go away and staying on top of things while you are away. This needn't take much time. It can be as little as an hour of good checking from afar, and it doesn't even have to be every day, so you can typically slip it in when it's convenient. B. Force yourself and the people who work for you to do difficult things. It's a basic law of nature. You must stretch yourself if you want to get strong. You and your people must act with each other like trainers in gyms in order to keep one another fit. 10.8. Recognize and deal with key man risk. Every key person should have at least one person who can replace him or her. It's best to have those people designated as likely successors and have them apprentice and help in doing those key jobs. 10.9. Don't treat everyone the same. Treat them appropriately. It's often said that it is neither fair nor appropriate to treat people differently. But in order to treat people appropriately, you must treat them differently. That is because people and their circumstances are different. If you were a tailor, you wouldn't give all of your customers the same size suit. It is, however, important to treat people according to the same set of rules. That's why I've tried to flesh out Bridgewater's principles in an up-depth that differences are accounted for. For example, if someone has worked at Bridgewater for many years, the factors that that factors into how they are treated. Likewise, while I find all dishonesty intolerable, I don't treat all acts of dishonesty in people and all people who are dishonest the same. A. Don't let yourself get squeezed. Plenty of people have threatened me over the years by saying they'd quit, bring a lawsuit, embarrass me in the press, or you name it. While some people have advised me that it's easier to just make such things go away, I've found that doing so is almost always short-sighted. Giving in not only compromises your values, it telegraphs that the rules of the game have changed and opens you up to more of the same. Fighting for what's right can be hard in the short term, of course, but I'm willing to take the punch. What I worry about is doing the right thing and not about what people think about me. B care about the people who work for you. If you aren't working with people you care about and respect, your job probably isn't the one for you. I will be there for anyone who really needs me. When a whole community operates this way, it is very powerful and rewarding. 
personal contact in times of personal difficulty is a must. 10.10, know that great leadership is generally not what it's made out to be. I don't use the word leadership to describe what I do or what I think is good because I don't believe that what most people think of as good leadership is effective. Most people think of a good leader is a strong person who engenders confidence in others and motivates them to follow him or her, with the emphasis on the word follow. The stereotypical leader often sees questioning and disagreement as threatening and prefers people do what they're told. As an extension of this paradigm, the leader bears the main burden of decision-making, but because such leaders are never as all-knowing as they try to be, disenchantment and even anger tends to set in. That's why people who once loved their charismatic leaders often want to get rid of them. This traditional relationship between leaders and followers is the opposite of what I believe is needed to be most effective, and being maximally effective is the most important thing as a leader to do. It is more practical to be honest about one's uncertainties, mistakes, and weaknesses than to pretend that they don't exist. It is also more important to have good challengers than good followers. Thoughtful discussion and disagreement is practical because it stress tests leaders and brings what they are missing to their attention. One thing that leaders should not do, in my opinion, is be manipulative. Sometimes leaders will use emotions to motivate people to do things that they would not do after reflecting clearly. When dealing with intelligent people in an idea meritocracy, it is essential that one always appeal to their reason rather than their base emotions. The most effective leaders work to, one, open-mindedly seek out the best answers, and two, bring others along as part of that discovery process. That is how learning and getting in sync occurs. A truly great leader is appropriately uncertain but well-equipped to deal with that uncertainty through open-minded exploration. All else being equal, I think the kind of leader who looks and acts like a skilled ninja will beat the kind of leader who looks and acts like a muscular action hero every time. A. Be weak and strong at the same time. Sometimes asking questions to gain perspective can be misperceived as being weak and indecisive. Of course it's not. It's necessary in order to become wise, and it is a prerequisite for being strong and decisive. Always seek the advice of wise others and let those who are better than you take the lead. The objective is to have the best understanding to make the best possible leadership decisions. Be open-minded and assertive at the same time and get in tight sync with those who work with you, recognizing that sometimes not all or even the majority of people will agree with you. B. Don't worry about whether or not your people like you and don't look to them to tell you what you should do. Just worry, about, just worry about making the best decisions possible, recognizing that no matter what you do, most everyone will think you're doing something or many things wrong. It is human nature for people to want you to believe their own opinions and to get angry at you if you don't, even when they have no reason to believe that their opinions are good. So, if you're leading well, you shouldn't be surprised if people do disagree with you. The important thing is for you to be logical and objective in assessing your probabilities of being right. It is not illogical or arrogant to believe that you know better than the average person, so long as you are appropriately open-minded. In fact, it is not logical to believe that what the average person thinks is better than what you and the most insightful people around you think, because you have earned your way into your higher-than-average position, and you and those insightful people are more informed than the average person. 
If the opposite were true, then you and the average man shouldn't have your respective jobs. In other words, if you didn't have better insights than them, you shouldn't be a leader. And if you do have better insights than them, don't worry if you are doing unpopular things. So how should you deal with your people? Your choices are either to ignore them, which will lead to resentment and your ignorance of what they are thinking. You could blindly do what they want, which would not be a good idea. Or you can encourage them to bring their disagreements to the surface and work through them so openly and reasonably that everyone will recognize the relative merits of your thinking. Have the open disagreement and be happy with either win or lose the thought battles as long as the best ideas win out. I believe that an idea meritocracy will not only produce better results than any other systems, but will also ensure more alignment behind appropriate yet unpopular decisions. C. Don't give orders and try to be followed. Try to be understood and to understand others by getting in sync. If you want to be followed, either for egotistical reasons or because you believe it more expedient to operate that way, you will pay a heavy price in the long run. When you are the only one thinking, the results will suffer. Authoritarian managers don't develop their subordinates, which means that those who report to them stay dependent. This hurts everyone in the long run. If you give too many orders, people will likely resent them, and when you aren't looking, defy them. The greatest influence you can have over intelligent people, and the greatest influence they will have on you, comes from constantly getting in sync about what is true and what is best, so that all you want the same things. 10.11. Hold yourself and your people accountable, and appreciate them for holding you accountable. Holding people accountable means understanding them and their circumstances well enough to assess whether they can and should do some things differently. Getting in sync with them about that, and if they can't adequately do what is required, removing them from their job. It is not micromanaging, nor is it expecting them to be perfect. Holding particularly overloaded people accountable for doing everything excellently is often impractical, not to mention unfair. But people can resent being held accountable, and you don't want to have to tell them what to do all the time. Reason with them so that they understand the value of what you're doing, but never let them off the hook. A. If you've agreed with someone that something is supposed to go a certain way, make sure it goes that way, unless you get in sync about it differently. People will often subconsciously gravitate toward activities they like rather than what's required. If they lose sight of their priorities, you need to redirect them. This is part of why it's important to get frequent updates from people about their progress. B. Distinguish between a failure in which someone broke their contract and a failure in which there was no contract to begin with. If you didn't make an expectation clear, you can't hold people accountable for it not being fulfilled. Don't assume that something was implicitly understood. Common sense isn't actually all that common. Be explicit. If responsibilities keep falling between the cracks, consider editing the design of your machine. C. Avoid getting sucked down. This occurs when a manager is pulled down to, to doing the tasks of a subordinate without acknowledging the problem. The sucked down phenomenon bears some resemblance to job slip, since it involves the manager's responsibilities slipping into areas that should be left to others. But while job slipping can make sense on a temporary basis to push through to a goal, it's also generally a signal that a part of the machine is broken and needs fixing. 
The sucked down phenomenon is what happens when a manager chronically fails to properly redesign an area of responsibility to keep him or herself from having to do the job that others should be capable of doing well. You can tell this problem exists when the manager focuses more on getting tasks done than on operating his or her machine. D. Watch out for people who confuse goals and tasks, because if they can't make that distinction, you can't trust them with responsibilities. People who can see the goals are usually able to synthesize, too. One way to test this, if you ask a high-level question like, how is goal XYZ going? A good answer will provide a synthesis up front of how XYZ is going overall, and if needed, will support it by accounting for the tasks that were done to achieve it. People who see the tasks and lose sight of the goals will just describe the tasks that were done. E. Watch out for the unfocused and unproductive theoretical should. A theoretical should occurs when people assume that others or themselves should be able to do something when they don't actually know whether they can, as in, Sally should be able to do X, Y, or Z. Remember that to really accomplish things, you need believable, responsible parties who have a track record of success in the relevant area. A similar problem occurs when people discuss how to solve a problem by saying something vague and depersonalized like, we should do X, Y, Z. It is important to identify who these people are by name rather than with a vague we, and to recognize that it is their responsibility to determine what should be done. It is especially pointless for a group of people who are not responsible to say things like, we should, to each other. Instead, those people should be speaking to the responsible party about what should be done. 10.12. Communicate the plan clearly and have clear metrics conveying whether you are progressing according to it. People should know the plans and designs within their departments. If you decide to diverge from an agreed-upon path, be sure to communicate your thoughts to the relevant parties and get their views so that you are all clear about the new direction. This allows people to buy into the plan or express their lack of confidence and suggest changes. It also makes clear what the goals are and who is keeping up his or her end of the bargain and who is falling short. Goals, tasks, and assigned responsibilities should be reviewed at department meetings at least once a quarter, perhaps as often as once a month. A. Put things in perspective by going back before going forward. Before going forward with a new plan, take the time to reflect on how the machine has been working up till now. Sometimes people have problems putting current conditions into perspective or projecting into the future. Sometimes they forget who or what caused things to go well or poorly. By asking them to tell the story of how we got here, or by telling the story yourself, you can highlight important items that were done well or poorly in relation to their consequences. You can draw attention to the bigger picture in the overarching goals, and specify the people who are responsible for specific goals and tasks and help achieve agreement. Being able to connect all these items at multiple levels is essential for people to understand the plan, give feedback on it, and eventually believe in it. 10.13. Escalate when you can't adequately handle your responsibilities. And make sure that the people who work for you are proactive about doing the same. Escalating means saying you don't believe that you can successfully handle a situation and that you are passing the responsible party job to someone else. The person you are escalating to, the person to whom you report, can then decide whether to coach you through it, take control themselves, have someone else handle it, or do something else. 
it's critical that ex escalation not be seen as a failure, but as a responsibility. All responsible parties will eventually face tests that they don't know whether they can handle. What's important is raising their concerns so their boss knows about the risks and both the boss and the escalating RP can get in sync about what to do about it. There is no greater failure than to fail to escalate a responsibility you cannot handle. Make sure your people are proactive. Demand that they speak up when they can't meet agreed-upon deliverables or deadlines. Such communication is essential to get in sync, both on the case at hand and what the person handling it is like.